Well, good morning, church. You can go ahead and take a seat. Thank you. Good morning to you. Um, Philippians 1. I promise we're not in Acts. We're in Philippians this time. Um, Open to uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, uh, which is where we will be. If you have been with us the last couple of weeks, uh, we have uh, gotten our Philippians series underway. Uh, Last week we saw looking at the story of how Paul got to Philippi. He was trying to go to the left. The Spirit didn't let that happen. Trying to go to the right, Spirit said no again. But the Spirit saw something that Paul did not see, and that was to get him all the way to Europe. And so the Lord puts roadblocks that seem like roadblocks in our lives, but it's really, he's just using his providential hand to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And so... um, the way the story continues on is that Paul uh, ends up going outside of the city gate of this very Roman city, very Roman identity uh, city, and he goes down to uh, the river. And there's a whole bunch of women that were there, so he goes down to the river to pray. And as he comes across these uh, women, there was one a lady who was a God-fearing uh, woman who ends up getting converted, seller of purple. Her name was Lydia. And as I was looking at just the backstory in Acts 16 that really helps us understand what the church in Philippi is all about, it it reminded me that uh, women are quite significant in the history of the church. Um, When I got here in April to visit you, and now as I've gotten um, here permanently, one of the things that is is spoken a lot about about Bethesda is that uh, she has a lot of men that are serving. One thing I am convinced of, though, is that if we just disappeared suddenly, men, I am quite confident the women would do just fine without us here. I'm very confident of that. Um, having to sit down, getting the chance to sit down with some of you uh, ladies who are leading significant ministries here, uh, getting to poke my head a little bit into uh, the Sunday school classrooms, it's an encouragement to know that um, we have uh, strong women here. And I would say thank you for the work that uh, you've been doing here to make this a, a church family. We, we serve a God who is in control over everything. He has made us free from the bondage of sin, slaves to Jesus, saints gathered together with elders and deacons. He has done all of this by the power of the God-man, Jesus. And we have a triune Lord that we get to submit underneath The question we now have before us in the passage we're going to look at, as we look towards the future, as we're in this new season, is what kind of church will we be going forward? Uh, Paul, in this passage, what he does is he says, I thank God for you. And he goes on and he's going to explain, this is a church that's worth praising, worth giving thanks for. When I think about you, I have joy, is what he says. The question I have is, if he were to write about Bethesda, would he be able to say the same thing when you line us up against the church in Philippi? So that's the question that we really want to answer is, when you put the portrait together of what the church is supposed to be about, what does it really look like? And so if you're new with us today, I just want to say thank you for being here. Um, Our idea is that we would strive for this even if we fall short. Um, I told you that part of the aiming of, uh, aim of preaching, what I'm trying to accomplish, is to help you read your Bible well, to be able to read it better than you did before you came into the room. One of the things that I don't know about you, but I have found reading Paul is that you can read a paragraph from something in Scripture, especially from the Pauline epistles, and go, I know that was really important, 
super spiritual, but I don't really know how it all fits together. Let me give you some, a guide here to help us as we walk through this passage. Verses three through eight are gonna tell us why Paul gives thanksgiving to God for the Philippians. So that's the first part. He's gonna say, this is why I'm so thankful for you. And then the last part we're gonna look at is Paul's prayer for the church. And that is a famous prayer that we're gonna spend a little time looking at this morning. So why he's thankful, three through eight, Nine through 11, the prayer. Let's look at three through eight, so let's read. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, there it is, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse eight, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, I don't know if you, 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 this stands out to you immediately, but this really does for me. Note the tone in which Paul is talking here. He says, I thank God every time I think about you. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. Um, I yearn for you with all of the affection of Christ Jesus. Listen, I, I love the elders, I love the deacons, I love the guys here, but no one's come up to me yet and, and said, man, I just wanna let you know, Pastor Aaron, I yearn for you. That's just kind of weird, right? That you would use language like, I just wanna let you know that, brother. Yearning for you, right? It's just kind of odd, right? But yet Paul does this. Does it make you kind of uncomfortable the way he has that just really intimate tone the way he talks? I mean, this is, this is Paul studied under Gamaliel, one of the, the Hebrews of Hebrews. And Paul says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's brilliant. He knows his, Paul knows his Torah like the back of his hand. He has more degrees than a thermometer. This guy is no dry college professor. He is full of deep joy when he praises God for the church in Philippi. I've had... I've had three of you come up to me um, as we've prepared to get, get started and underway here, and, and you've said, now, pastor, I want you to know that when you come to Bethesda, understand the culture that is here. Um, don't be going and fishing for those amens when you're preaching. And, and, I, and I've had others say to me, and, and this is just what I've been told, so don't shoot the messenger. Uh, I've had others that have said, well, we've got that German Mennonite culture here, so we're more, more serious, so don't be trying to get reactions out of us. And, and I want to say this to you. I mean this absolutely sincerely. Um, I don't care. And, and I just don't, I don't care about whether you say amen or not. What is more important to me is that the so be it of what amen really means would be true, not in merely by what you say or what comes out right here in this moment, but how you live when we go out from here. That's the true amen, is how we obey God's word when we walk out from here. But understand this, regardless of emotions or, or responses, we're called to have a, a deep joy in us. And I'm not talking merely happiness, not just happiness. You know the difference between happiness and joy, right? Happiness is fleeting. Happiness is I got, I got that couch from Ashley Furniture that I wanted, and it's nice until my kid spits on it, and then it's just whatever, right? Um, it, it's, it's, it's just a fleeting thing. But joy is deeper. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. 
One scholar puts it this way. He says, joy is a delight that runs deeper than pain or pleasure. Biblically, it is not limited by external circumstances. Joy is God's gift, and it can be experienced even amid extreme difficulty. It is a quality of life, not simply a fleeting emotion. Joy is deep gladness that you can have regardless of suffering or comfort. That's what, that's what joy is. And when you have that joy, you can have it in the midst of clinical depression, whether you are in abundance, ease of life, happiness, or sadness. It gives you the ability to say, it's okay when it's not okay, right? It's okay when it's not okay. How can you have this deep joy? I think the answer is given to us, the clue to it is at least given to us, and how Paul says first, the first reason why he's thankful for the Philippians. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And that's so key. When I say gospel, what comes to your mind? In the last 15 years, if you've been um, up to date with just the evangelical subculture that really, in a way, we're, we're a part of, you know, there's been something of a resurgence of this term, the gospel. You'll hear terms like gospel-centered marriage or uh, gospel-centered preaching or gospel-centered uh, parenting, gospel-centered churches, gospel-centered witness. You have the gospel coalition. You have gospel coalition conferences. And if you have not been up to date on any of this and you just thought gospel is what our black brothers and sisters sing whenever they gather for worship, you've been underneath a rock. Gospel has been a word that is so important to the history of Christianity, and yet we've been talking about it over the course of the last decade and a half in such a way where, where it can become diluted. What does that word even mean? We're all using it, but what does the word gospel even mean? I'm thankful that scripture helps out with this. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. Here's what the gospel is. Now, I would remind you, brothers, Paul says, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, in which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here it is. This is the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he has raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is good news. It is good news that though you were dead in your sin, deserving of punishment and justice from a righteous judge, Christ has paid for your sin in blood, and he is the Lord because he has won victory over sin, death, and the devil itself. And so the game is truly rigged because we serve a God who in the middle of time has already declared how the end result is going to be. And so we can look at what, what our sin looks like, what the devil has has done, we can look at death itself, and we know that we serve a God who has already declared that victory, and we get to live out in that as we await the kingdom to come. This is the gospel message. He has overcome all things through the blood of the Lamb. And it's this message that, man, that gets me, that gets Paul dialed up, it gets me, if you can't tell, excited, because it brings freedom, right? And it's not just that it brings freedom. I am okay being a broken record about the right things. The gospel isn't just good news that you believe when you first became a Christian. You live out the effects of it right here and right now. If you want a gospel-centered marriage, you consider the fact that 
Christ, through his cross, gave you forgiveness. And now you can give forgiveness to your spouse unconditionally when they don't deserve you. Des- deserve it. Ask my spouse from this direction this way, because that happens far more this direction than the other way. That's true for all of us. If you want a gospel-centered life in parenting, the Father's patience towards me and towards all of us when we were sinners... He still has so much patience towards us, and yet we can look at our own children and have that same patience that the Father, through through the power of the cross, gives to us. How is God, I want to ask you this, calling you to demonstrate that picture of the gospel in your home this week? For August, my, my, my two-and-a-half-year-old, I'm thinking about this. As the father and I have this relationship, how am I supposed to act out that picture with my own son and how I discipline, train up, and love my own son? When you deal with habitual sin, the power of the cross that comes from the gospel tells you that you are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to Jesus Christ, and therefore you are the most free person as all, as we've seen. When you suffer, You know that the power of the gospel that comes in the cross gives you the ability to say, I can handle this. It gives me the ability when when this week I am calling up Albert Decker who has has fallen and has COVID and is in the hospital and I'm supposed to be the one to encourage him. And he is encouraging me and he says things like, he will get us through this. I don't know what will happen to my mobility, but he will get us through this, right? How can you say something like that? What confidence? Why? I'll tell you where that confidence comes from. Christ, our older brother, who has that resurrected body, and he knows what's going to happen later. Because, And this is particularly a truth that is glorious for us, for those especially who are closer to glory than a birth. This word says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And we may say, Lord, I hate that verse because I deal, I deal with the sting of death now. And the gospel says to you, Friend, that is only temporary because there is coming a day when death will be no more. And we serve a Lord now whose, whose heel has stood on the serpent and whose same heel has kicked open that front door of death. And it gives us the ability to say, he will hold me fast. Not only does he save me, but he sustains me through the power of the cross. So you can have joy in the midst of depression. Joy in the midst of debilitating ailment. Joy when the prodigal son or daughter doesn't come home. Joy in the face of unimaginable loss. Joy when you fall again to that pet sin that, you felt, that you've been dealing with for the last 20 years. Because you know your circumstances and your shortcomings do not change the more true reality that you have a God who loves you. Through, though you may doubt him, he is in control of what is happening in your lives. And you can look and say, I don't know how this is all going to work out, but I know he has told me that all things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We have a great gospel message that brings us salvation and sustains us. It doesn't just save you, friend. Are you getting this? It doesn't just save you. It sustains you today and in this coming week. And if you haven't taken a hold of this gospel, here's what my recommendation would be to you. Grab a hold of it by faith today. What does that mean? You go like this. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I got nothing. Help me, Lord. That's what it means to have faith. 
say, I have nothing to offer. You believe in the gospel, and you become a part of the people of God. It's this message that Paul is able to look at the Philippians and go, can you believe it? We get to be a part of this same thing together. We get to have the same message that binds us together. You may have nothing in common with the person to your left or to your right, or in front of you or behind you, but you know that what binds us all together as members of Bethesda who have believed in Christ is that gospel message. I don't know the first thing, y'all, about pig farming. I just know that the A-hearts have given me the best bacon I've ever had in my life. And what binds me together with the chairman of our deacons, ultimately, is that we are on that same gospel mission together. I know absolutely nothing about Nebraska, where the chairman of our elders is from, except for the fact that when I drove through 81, going to see Justine's family while I was in college, it smelled like cow manure. That's all I've got, right? But I know that what binds Wes and I together is that we are on that same gospel mission to reach lost people through the message of the power of the cross. That's, that's what we have that binds us together. And so if you want to be that church that has that portrait that Paul is talking about, this is what it means to be a gospel-centered church, living and be, being sustained and telling others about what he has done for us. Verse 6, look at that. Paul then gives a second reason. Second reason for why he's so thankful for the church in Philippi. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is one of several passages in the book of Philippians that are famous. You, you may, may recognize this verse. This is, this is one of those famous, this is a, a, a coffee cup verse. You put it on the back of a t-shirt and, 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 it's, and it's famous for, for these reasons. But here's what I want to do right now, if we could, in just this moment, ask, what is this verse actually in context saying? Because you can find when you pull this verse out, put it up on a wall somewhere, you can miss the deep meaning that the author is really trying to get at. Let me show you what I mean. What is that good work that he's talking about? Don't answer, just think about it. What is that good work that Paul is talking about that God started and he's going to finish? Now, for some, we may think this is like a self-help verse God is here to help us accomplish our dreams, whether you want to have that nice house with the white picket fence, the minivan that you can drive until you die, the family that you always wish that you would have, right? We could think that is, that is it, that the good work that God started is the dreams that I have that he would accomplish in my life. But that's not what he's saying. The good work that Paul is talking about is salvation. That's what he's talking about. That God started it, he com and he will complete it in our lives. And it brings up really a central theological question that we all have been, if we haven't yet been confronted with, we will all be confronted with at some point. And it's this question. Can I lose my salvation? You ever thought about that before? Can I lose my salvation? Can, can I start as a Christian and then, then lose it along the way? You ever come across someone who, who says, I, I believed really seriously yesterday, but I'm not so sure today. If you were to sit down with someone like that, what would you say? What would you say to that person? While you're thinking of the answer to that question, let me tell you a little bit about my own story. In the summer of 2013, I was at a uh, charismatic church. And by charismatic, I just don't, I don't necessarily mean um, 
charismatic personality, or I mean charismatic theology is what I'm getting at. And I don't have time to really explain what all that means except to say believing in the contemporary miraculous works of the Holy Spirit, really, really holding on to that and believing that. I found during that season that I started to have questions and doubts, and it really began like this. Does God speak to me beyond what Scripture says? Like that? Does God do the miracles that this person over here says they've encountered yesterday? Does God even speak to me? Is, can I trust his word? And then it got all the way down to, is God even there? Or is it just me? And so over about a six-month period, by the time I got to um, November, December of my senior year of college, I'm leading Bible studies. I'm leading our um, young adults men's ministry at Tabor. I'm finishing up my senior Bible class final exams and I'm doubting whether God even exists. I get to a point, I'm, lit, I'm, I'm on my bunk bed, and I went, I think this is all there is. And, and, and I found myself really flirting with agnosticism at the very least, but, but borderline atheism. It's a very difficult discussion to have with your fiance of one week, saying, can you marry someone who's not a Christian? Those were very difficult discussions in those moments, tough moments. It was incredible. I, I met my professor, Dell. I came to him in the midst of all this. I'd finished my last exam uh, on the Old Testament that year. And I said, I, I think my faith is falling apart, Dell. What do I do? And he gave me two pieces of advice that I would recommend to you if you found, if you found yourself or are finding yourself presently in, in a place like this. He said two things. Find your anchors and then figure out the luggage that you can't take with you if you give up your faith. First thing, find your anchors. He says, look at the fact that so many Christians have asked the same questions you've dealt with. You are not, there's nothing new under the sun. You're not asking anything new. Look at how people like Martin Luther and Augustine and all of the other saints have dealt with the same things that you're dealing with. And go look at the things that lashed them in, that kept, the, that kept them strong. And he said, secondly, I want you all also to do this. If you decided to give up your faith, what, what ethics could you not take with you? In, in other words, what would be, when the foundation was pulled out from underneath you, the things that you believe, ethical views on the meaning of life and the value of life, would you be able to say the same things that you're saying now? I started thinking about this, thinking about this, and I went, I really gotta dive into that first question. What, what are the anchors I need to hold on to? And I, and I found myself going, well, do I go to Genesis 1 and, and do, the whole, um, uh, do the whole cosmology debate and look at everything from a scientific worldview? Or do I go back to that church and see if those miracles that they talked about were real? Where do I start? Where do you start when you're dealing with doubt? When other people around you, church people are saying, just have more faith. And you're going, yeah, that's the point. I'm trying to deal with that right now. Help me out. And so I found myself thinking of a guy named Lee Strobel, and I knew he was an investigative journalist and how he had gone to the story of the resurrection and he had ended up being converted as an atheist to Christianity because he saw the evidence that was there. And I remember reading 1 Corinthians 15 that said, if Christ has not been raised, then your preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So I started diving into the account of the resurrection. Did this guy Jesus really rise from the dead? And I got to the spring of my, my senior year then, and I remember going, I think there's too much here. I think he may have resurrected from the dead, and I gotta keep going. And so I kept going, and I did the best thing you should do when you're dealing with doubt. I went to seminary, 
And so I went to seminary, and over the course of the next year, just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper. And there was this guy named Jay Warner Wallace, cold case detective. And maybe anybody here has watched that show uh, at one point called Cold Case Detective. Same thing like Strobel. He was an atheist who had used his skills as a cold case detective and had applied them to the resurrection account, and he had come to faith. And he's there doing this conference, and I'm listening to it. It's making sense. He's talking about the veracity of the disciples' claims uh, of seeing Jesus' resurrected body, how the story of Christianity remained unchanged over the next several hundred years in contradistinction, by the way, of what our friends across the street, the LDS community, believes. And he says, no, it doesn't change. You can trust that what you read in your Bible has not been corrupted. You should doubt your doubts is what he taught us. And I remember listening to what he was saying, and I said, fine. I got up, actually, and I said, fine. I rose my hand, and I go, what difference does it make? I kind of yelled it out like that in a room like this. And I can't even tell you what he said, but I remember we started talking afterwards, and he was very kind, compassionate. I remember his demeanor more than actually what he said. And afterwards, I'm driving home, and I start thinking, yeah, the evidence really is pointing that direction. This guy rose from the dead, but what difference does it make? And in about a five-second period, all the dots began to click. It was just like the dominoes went boom, 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 like that. And it went like this. If he's resurrected from the dead, he's alive. And if he's resurrected from the dead, then he has seen me doubting him this whole time. And he still hasn't given up on me. And then it was just like this shuddering feeling. If he's alive and he's seen all of this, then he's in the car with me right now by the presence of his spirit. It had moved very quickly from intellectual thought watching 100 YouTube videos in my dorm room uh, on, on Christianity debates, all the way to there is a God who sees me right now. And so like holiness and grace hit me at the same time. Holiness because who am I? That he didn't give up on me in the midst of this. And grace because he's still here. He's still here. Why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story, one, so you can know my heart. My heart is in particular for those who deal with doubt. Because I have definitely walked through that, having difficult questions it seems like people can't answer. And it's not just intellectual, but emotional, things like that too. God has called us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to love the Lord with our minds, to be able to give an intelligent answer for the reason of the hope that is within us. For our purposes, though, I tell you this story so that you would see that my life is a testimony that though we are Christians are weak, he is strong. We do not sustain our salvation, he does. Though we are doubters, he is faithful to finish the work that he started. And take it a step further, friends. Not only does he sustain the work that he started, like you didn't save yourself. It's like looking at a dead body and saying, get up. I didn't, I didn't do anything, he found me. He found me. We were not looking for him when he found us. We were enjoying our sin we are enjoying our sin and he got a hold of us. Christ goes behind us to save us. He gives us the faith to believe in him and yet he is also the object of our faith. He does it all from beginning to end. And so the question, can you lose your salvation? No, never, because you didn't start your salvation, he did. It's his work that he started and it's his work that he's going to finish on the day of Jesus Christ. The assurance of your salvation is not in your work, but it's in his work, which is continuing, it's ongoing. Some of you are looking at me like you're not convinced. Let me, let me give you some more ammunition. Here we go. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Not even you, friend. You cannot snatch yourself out of the Father's hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You are held together by the Son and the Father. It's a Trinitarian act. I'll give you another one that should do it. Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves you too much. You want to know how much he loves you? He doesn't let you enjoy your sin as much as you would like to. You want to know the assurance of salvation that you have is that he convicts you. He is jealous for you, and he will not let you go. The evidence of his sustaining work might be is that he keeps bothering you because of your sin. And so, friend, if you want an application from this message, what we're getting at today, you want, you want your big application? Stop it and rest in him. That's it. Rest in him this morning. Rest in him because he's got you, and he's not going to let go. You, saint, are going to persevere to the end because of the work that he has begun in you. And so you may be thinking, and I find myself thinking this, this is the paradox of Christianity. God has called me on the one hand to rest in him, give up, let him do the work. And yet, on the other side, doesn't he, doesn't he say to be obedient? Didn't we say that last week? So does he do the work or do I do the work? Does he do the work or do I do the work? Yes, that's the answer. Yes, because of what we've been singing. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Your work, but you must obey. For, and here's his work, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Surrender and let him work in you. This is what we call sanctification, by the way. It's that long, hard road of tripping and falling down and getting back up, but holding on to that passage that says, a righteous man may fall seven times, but he's still gonna get back up in the end. You wanna know the confidence of your salvation? You are gonna make it all the way to the finish line, and when you look back, you'll say, yeah, I would have gone to hell a hundred times over except for God and what he has done for me to sustain me all the way through. Rest, but don't be lazy. Verse nine, and this is where we'll end here. Here's the prayer. Verse nine says this, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Do you see the flow here? We've got another slide. We'll put that up on the screen. Just, just how it goes from one thing to the next to the next to the next. It starts with love, and then it goes to what is excellent, getting ready for Jesus, and ultimately to the glory of God. See that flow there? What is the ultimate reason for why we are called to be this gospel-centered church full of joy? Look at the first thing, love. What kind of love do you see in that passage, verse 9? Look at it, please. What does it say? Love with what? Knowledge and discernment. It's so key that we get this in our culture. If we're gonna be salt and light to the culture and a culture that says love is love, whatever in the world that actually means, right? What, what in the world that, that actually means? Uh, and what comes with it, that sexual ethic that our, that our world is propagating at this moment. The Christian looks at the face of that and says, 
friend, I love you, but this book has called me to be knowledgeable of what is in it so I could actually be loving according to the way God has called me to be loving towards you. Man, speak the truth, or be loving, but speak the truth alongside of it. It may be difficult, even when it hurts, but it's the right thing to do. Love with knowledge and discernment. But if you flip it, we must be knowledgeable with also a loving heart. Love without knowledge is rudderless, but knowledge without love is destructive in its own way. Why is it that some of the most theologically astute, intelligent people I know are some of the most <laughs> some of the most grouchy, crusty church members I've ever come across in my life? Why is it that it seems like for some people, the more they know about Scripture, the more hard-nosed that they become? Friend, the more you read God's word, it shouldn't make you have a harder heart. It should make you have a softer heart because you're coming in contact with the God of the Bible who is compassionate towards you so you can be compassionate towards others. If you are the type of person that sees every single thing in life as a nail to be hammered in, as other people as a debate to, to win, and not actually persons who are made in the image of God, this morning, friend, God is calling you to repent. That's the only way to put it, that you would get on your knees if you've only seen the Bible as a means to win an argument, a means to demonstrate, that, to win others' approval, so that you would repent and see instead that God is calling you to look more like the loving God that he actually is, so that you would be truly Christ to others. Yes, speak the truth, but do so in love, my friends. So if we're supposed to be loving, we do it so that we would be, know what was excellent. You want to know how we can do what is excellent as a body of believers? If you haven't already, let me encourage you. Talk to Palmer. Talk to Helene. And get, get your kids, get yourself involved in a Bible study. This may surprise you, but I don't have all the answers. And you don't either. This is why we need each other. That we would come together and say, brother, what are you seeing in the text that I don't see? How can you help me? How can you encourage me? Talk to one of these brothers. Go to the visitor center afterwards and get involved in community and become a part of this community of believers. But ultimately, what's the why? You see it right there on the screen. Why are we loving? So we would be knowledgeable and discerning. So we would know what is excellent, prepare for the day of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, why? To the praise and glory of his name. The chief end of man, as the old theologians used to say, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When we as a gospel-centered church, putting our joy in him, act in such a way that we know he's gonna get us across that finish line with a huge trust in him, we'll be able to look back and say, it was his work and not our work that got us across that finish line, and he gets the credit to the glory of his name. That's the kind of church that I wanna be a part of, and I hope you do too. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.